Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. It was 20 years ago now, so maybe you have forgotten this moment, but... She made history in 2002. Good morning. My colleagues just bestowed upon me the great honor to be the leader of the Democrats in the House of Representatives. They did so in across the board, overwhelming vote of support. And I'm very, very honored. That was Nancy Pelosi after being chosen to be the first woman to lead one of America's major political parties in Congress. Four years later, Democrats won control of the House of Representatives, and Nancy Pelosi again made history as the first woman ever to be Speaker of the House, second in line to the presidency. But it's not just the first ever designations and not just the trailblazing that sets this speaker apart from all the other ones. It is the record. Nancy Pelosi has been one of the most effective speakers in American history. In her cumulative eight years as Speaker of the House, she was instrumental and the passage of Obamacare, land, landmark legislation that brought health care to millions of Americans. She navigated the passage of Joe Biden's agenda, passing the COVID relief bill and the infrastructure bill and the biggest investment in combating climate change in U.S. history. When we think of consequential American political leaders, we often think of presidents. <clears throat> but Pelosi's career shows as a speaker of the House who, in many ways, has been as consequential as the president himself. <coughs> All of the landmark legislation from Democratic presidents in the 21st century is in large part a result of the work of Nancy Pelosi, her ability to keep the caucus together and get things done. My ability to finish the script. During her two four-year stints as Speaker, Pelosi only ever saw one bill defeated on the House floor, just one. And that one failed vote wouldn't have happened were it not for Republican infighting. In 2008, Republicans failed to deliver their share of the necessary votes to save the American financial system from collapse, even as Pelosi delivered her share. After some scrambling on the Republican side, Congress did eventually pass that bill. And that is the only L on Nancy Pelosi's scoreboard, the only one. Today, Pelosi announced that she would be stepping aside as the leader of the Democratic Party in Congress. She is now likely to be succeeded by another historic first. Democrats have begun to coalesce around New York Congressman Hakeem Jeffries to be their next leader in the House. Should Congressman Jeffries succeed, he'd be the first ever African-American to lead a major party in Congress, and he will have big shoes to fill. Not only are there Pelosi's legislative accomplishments as Speaker, for the past four years, Nancy Pelosi has been at the helm of the movement to counter Donald Trump, to act as a check on his influence in the party and the authoritarianism he's injected into American politics. And this was not a congressperson who who took on this mantle reluctantly. She was all in. Remember this photo from the meeting between White House and congressional leaders during Trump's first impeachment or the epic golf clap during Trump's State of the Union or when she upped the ante by ripping up her copy of Donald Trump's State of the Union speech? although she was polite enough not to try and flush it down any government toilets afterwards. 
Ahem. But these moments weren't just photo ops and clickbait, though, yes, they were those things too. They represented something deeper. They were symbols of a powerful rejection of Donald Trump and everything he stood for. And Pelosi made them at considerable risk to herself and her family. Because of her public and unyielding opposition to President Trump, Pelosi was one of the chief targets of the violent forces that were stirred up by Trump's election lies. Last night, we got this new footage of Capitol rioters ransacking Speaker Pelosi's office on January 6th. The footage was released as part of the government's case against Riley Williams, a 23-year-old woman with white supremacist ties who led a gang of insurrectionists to Pelosi's office and aided in the theft of the Speaker's laptop. And while those rioters were ransacking her office and while the president was watching the events on TV, Speaker Pelosi was on the phone from a secure location working on the federal government's response to the violence while she herself was a target of that violence. Last month, a violent QAnon extremist broke into Pelosi's home, attacking her husband, Paul Pelosi, with a hammer. It was an attack that many Republicans later sought to trivialize or dismiss around which they could promote baseless conspiracy theories, all in an attempt to diminish it, to just forget about it. But the reality is that the violence directed against Nancy Pelosi and her family by the former president and his supporters will forever be part of how we remember the Pelosi era. Which is why it's all the more shocking that the New York Times reported last night that one of the very first things Republicans want to do when they take control of the House is to investigate Nancy Pelosi for her treatment of the January 6th insurrectionists. I am not kidding. They are not kidding. Quote, in a closed door meeting of Republicans on Monday, right wing lawmakers, including Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, extracted a promise that their leaders would investigate Speaker Pelosi and the Justice Department for their treatment of defendants jailed in connection with the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Republicans think that Nancy Pelosi mistreated the violent mob that stormed her office. That is the goal on day one of their new House majority. So these are the records right here today. An outgoing leader carrying a resume filled with major structural change to benefit millions of Americans and an incoming leader of a party for whom extremism and conspiracies and grievance, these are the only things on his agenda. So what happens now? Joining us now is someone who has been Nancy Pelosi's leadership firsthand, who has seen it and been there, California Congressman Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee. Congressman, it is good to have you. Thank you for being here tonight. Please do most of the talking because I am really having a hard time. But let me first start. Um, You had a front row seat to the Pelosi era. And I wonder from someone high up in leadership, what did it look like from the front row? What was it like to be a Democratic caucus member under the leadership of Nancy Pelosi? I think all of us working with her, working around her, uh, had the sense uh, that we are working with the greatest speaker the country's probably ever had. Uh, someone of immense talent, some of someone of historic proportion. Uh, what she was able to do with the slimmest of margins was only possible because she she combined so many different skills. She knows the members supremely well. She knows what they want. Conversely, she knows what they actually need. She knows their districts. Uh, she understands the legislative issues. 
She's a brilliant tactician. She knows how to work the members uh, on both sides of the Capitol. Uh, she knows how to leverage, uh, even being in the minority. Uh, and she got so much when we were in the minority, uh, often to the uh, the anxiety of the Republican majority that they were outplayed by Speaker Pelosi. Now, you might find somebody who has some of those skills. You you rarely find in a generation anyone who has all of them. And you have never found, I think, in history, someone who had them in such great abundance. So all of us around her recognized that we were in the presence of greatness. You know, I will say as someone who's had the privilege of interviewing her before, you always knew that you had limited time because she had an extraordinary calendar. And it wasn't just, you know, legislative meetings. These were constituent funerals or baby showers. I mean, this is someone who really understood the poly part of politics, the humanity. She was there at critical moments in her constituents' lives. And I think that that's part of the speakership that go, that it hasn't been reported on as much. The degree to which she was really on the road doing the damn thing all the time. But she also had the ability to be firm, right? I mean, I think that's the other part. She was unstinting when she didn't like something that one of her own caucus members had presented. This was a a mom who was unafraid to, um, I won't say spare, she didn't spare the raw. I don't want to bring corporal punishment, but you know, she was tough, right? Did you, did you ever, were you ever a victim of that toughness? Oh, I saw her toughness all the time. Um, and I remember, I have to tell you a funny story. When my daughter was, I think, only about three or four years old, uh, I took her to the Capitol. And at that time, Nancy Pelosi was our whip. And I introduced her to Nancy Pelosi. And I said to my daughter, Alexa, this is Nancy Pelosi. She's our whip. If you don't do what she wants, she has a whip. And, and Nancy got down on her knees uh, at the level of my daughter and said, don't tell her that. Don't tell her that. And she took my daughter's hands and said, it's a candy whip. It's a candy whip. <laughs> and, I, I thought, and I thought to myself, it is not a candy whip. <laughs> um, no, she, she could be really tough, as Donald Trump found out, as anyone who's ever tried to cross her found out. Uh, and, and most importantly, she is and, and has been utterly tenacious uh, in defending our democracy at its most vulnerable hour, and and tenacious in defending her constituents in California, people all around the country, and particularly children who are her real love and passion. Congressman, you know, as as Nancy Pelosi exits the, the her leadership role, she's staying in Congress. But as Kevin McCarthy appears poised to take up the gavel, and Republicans are going to be in control of Congress, and they've outlined their priorities, and I would put that in quotes. Their priorities is largely, um, you know, the fabrication of conspiracy theories. What do you how are you thinking about the next two years ahead? What can Democrats do? How should House Democrats be thinking of their power in this moment? Well, you know, one of the reasons I was really hoping one of the many reasons I was hoping that uh, Speaker Pelosi would stay on as our leader is it would have been the greatest mismatch in talent and intellect in history. Uh, Nancy Pelosi versus Kevin McCarthy. Um, Look, you know, it's important for the country that the work, the business of the country get done in the next two years. Uh, President Biden, I think, made a very gracious statement uh, to Kevin McCarthy, urging that we work productively. They don't seem interested in that. Uh, As you said, you know, Kevin McCarthy has promised the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world that, no, he's going to pursue these QAnon crazy conspiracy theories, investigate Nancy Pelosi for what? Uh, for having a, a, an insurrectionist crowd hunted to, to try to kill her. 
But, uh, you know, sadly, it will be uh, for Kevin McCarthy, uh, the lowest common denominator of their caucus. He is a very weak leader in, in every sense of that term, meaning he doesn't have a stronghold in his caucus. He doesn't have a, a really doesn't have an ideology except his own advancement. And that's not much of, of a, a kind of cohesion to hold together his caucus. So, um, you know, sadly, I think it's going to be chaos on their side of the aisle. And it's a, a tragedy for the country because, you know, we need to deal with inflation. We need to deal with, with changing climate. We need to deal with health care and so many other issues. Uh, and we need a functional government. Congressman Adam Schiff of California, thank you for making the time and sharing with us my now favorite Nancy Pelosi line about a candy whip. It is not a candy <laughs> whip. Uh, Congressman, thanks for your time. Thanks for joining us tonight. I am now joined by Jake Sherman, co-founder of Punchbowl News and an MSNBC political contributor. Jake, it is great to see you. Thanks for being here tonight. You've been busy reporting out what is a monumental uh, decision by the almost, can I say, former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, soon to be former Speaker of the House, to step down. Um, Talk to me a little bit about how this is all going to work as far as how Democrats, are they seeing any power in these committee assignments? Do you feel like they're going to use those committee assignments to be a check on these Republican um, investigations that the uh, Kevin McCarthy seems intent on launching? They're very limited, Alex, because if you think about it, um, if you have 218 votes, if you have the majority in the House of Representatives, you could do anything you want, essentially, if you have 218 votes. Now, that means that Democrats on committees are going to be relatively limited in what they could do. They can't stop subpoenas. They can't uh, stop investigations. They can't do much besides be a forceful voice against what they think is unjust and what they think is unfair and what they think is overreach. And then you, you should have no doubt, Alex, that they're going to overreach. Every majority I've ever covered, and that's uh, too many of them, I guess, at this point, um, <laughs> have overreached in some way, shape, or form. Um, that doesn't mean their investigations are going to all overreach, but you, when you get into the majority, you have this kind of burning desire to investigate and, um, uh, there's always missteps. So Democrats can't do much. That doesn't mean they won't try. That doesn't mean they won't try to slow things down and fight back, but there's not a ton that they could do. But I do wonder whether um, messaging and communication is important on these committees, right? There's a, there was a question of yeah. seniority. Kurt Bardella in a piece in The Atlantic today recommends that Democrats elevate their best communicators on these committees. He sees it as paramount. The elevation of Elijah Cummings to oversight was really important in the Trump years. Do you see a new crop of less senior Democrats that may take the mantle and may take the microphone in this moment beyond the leadership positions that we seem to know now? Yeah, Jamie Raskin is one that will definitely be uh, someone that will definitely be incredibly useful in the majority. Now, I, you know, when Kurt Bardella was a Republican and I covered him, I dealt with him a lot when he was working for Daryl Issa back in the Obama administration. And, and that was a perfect example of how Republicans used the committee process to just pump the brakes and really yank the emergency brake on a lot of things that uh, were going on in the administration caused a huge distraction for Barack Obama. Uh, he, Obama was reelected, so it didn't hurt him that much. But at that time, yeah, they elevated Elijah Cummings because they saw him as the best person to take on Daryl Issa. Now, there is a very um, vibrant race to be the head of the oversight committee on the Democratic side of the aisle. But you you look around the, the, the Democratic caucus, one of the 
the Democrats' biggest strength and biggest weakness is they don't have term limits on their committee chairs. So it's very difficult to inject new blood when you need new blood. Some people have suggested that should change. Mr. Schiff, when he was considering a race for leader for leadership a couple months ago, suggested that should change. That was one of the things he he had been telling members of Congress. But um, and when you look at the Judiciary Committee, the House Judiciary Committee, you have Jerry Nadler on one side, who's going to be the top Democrat, Jim Jordan on the other side. I, Democrats are worried about that from uh, some who have told me that because Jim Jordan is um, uh, bombastic and and quite outspoken and Nadler a little less so. So that's something that Democrats have to figure out. But you're absolutely right. Communications and, and messaging and just how to get on TV and say these people are not telling the truth when they're not telling the truth is incredibly important. What about uh, the progressives? When we talk about the the names that have been floated for leadership, there are no House uh, progressives in the mix. Uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal has been very vocal. She was very engaged in House negotiations over the Build Back Better Act and some of the other key pieces of the Biden agenda. Do you see space for them? Is there is it too late? And why do you think the progressive wing of the caucus has been? I don't know if I can say left out at this juncture, but certainly is not um, on the main stage. You have to run for a leadership position if you want it. And um, if you're slow to it, and I, I said this today, maybe on Twitter, if that still exists, or maybe in one of our newsletters, but um, if you don't run and you don't get out of the gate, you're going to lose. Uh, and Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar um, really got out of the gate quickly and solidified their position. And that's why they are going to be the next leadership slate. But uh, Pramila Jayapal has not done that. Now, this is a similar dynamic. I'm not comparing uh, the Freedom Caucus and, and progressives, but you need to be able to build coalitions um, that could win you positions and leadership. You can't just hope that someone's going to put you there. You need to put together a race and run and convince people why you're the best for the job. It's not as much as, well, they're being left out and they really should have a place at the table. If they should have a place at the table, then they should be able to find a majority of House Democrats who agree with that proposition that they should be at the table. If there are not, then they should not be at the table. And that's what you see in Republican leadership. Conservatives complain they're left out. They don't have the numbers, so they can't get there. Now, this is something for Hakeem Jeffries to manage. It's going to be a, a difficult task for him. Hakeem Jeffries has frequently spoken out against the um, uh, some of the more progressive lawmakers. He's a pretty progressive lawmaker himself. He's not one of the, uh, you know, all the way on the left. And he's also spoken out against what he calls the performative nature of some segments of progressive politics these days. So um, that clash between Jeffries and that world and the leadership world and the progressive, the progressives will be something interesting to watch. I don't know. As, as complicated as that, <clears throat> that choreography is, I think most people watching these deliberations unfold would rather be in the Democratic caucus than the Republican caucus, where it just looks like an absolutely brutal path for anybody who's holding the speaker's gavel. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I mean, if you look what happened today, they swapped out three, Nancy Pelosi, Steady Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn for three, Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar. Um, so the Republicans can't, I mean, Kevin McCarthy has a treacherous, treacherous path to the speakership that uh, Nancy Pelosi w had similar treacherous paths, but was able to overcome them with quite ease, with, with a bunch of ease at the end of the day. And there are some people would say that is a treacherous path. 
of his very own making. Co-founder of Punchbowl News, Jake Sherman. Always good to see you. Great reporting, Jake. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have much more ahead this hour now that Republicans have won a narrow majority in the House. What kind of influence will the more partisan members of that caucus have? And will they actually pursue bogus investigations into President Biden, his family and his allies? I'll speak with Ben Rhodes, who once upon a time ago was himself the target of ridiculous Republican-led investigations. And with likely just weeks to go before the dissolution of the January 6th committee, investigators have spoken to a key member of Donald Trump's security detail who was with him on that violent day at the Capitol. All of that is just ahead. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Do you think the January 6th insurrectionists have been wrongly imprisoned? I didn't say anything. All I said is, all I said is we're going to look at the, the politics of the Justice Department <laughs> based on the fact that we have had 14 different, actually more than 14 now, whistleblowers come talk to us. That's what we're going to focus on. And my last question is, just, what are the grounds to investigate? If we can keep it about Hunter Biden, this is kind of a big deal, we think. If we can keep it about Hunter Biden, that would be great. So- than 24 hours after control of the House was called for Republicans, GOP leaders decided to hold this press conference to preview alleged evidence against Hunter Biden and the president. The two men poised to take over the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees in January telegraphed exactly where their attention will be laser focused going forward on fantasy investigations that target Joe Biden, his family and the Democrats. Not actual policy or perhaps something based in the world of facts. Focus is on conspiracy theories weaponized to extract political points. And they really do mean focus. In the words of Congressman Comer, if we could keep it about Hunter Biden, that'd be great. Would it? This is the direction of the Republican Party. So it should come as no surprise that when Speaker Pelosi reflected on her decades-long tenure on the House floor today, the man expecting to become the next speaker, he was absent. Kevin McCarthy told reporters he couldn't make it because he was taking meetings. As it turns out, McCarthy was meeting with Trump child separation czar and senior architect of cruelty, Stephen Miller. Washington Post reporter Jackie Alemany spotted Miller walking into the minority leader's office this morning, just before Speaker Pelosi took the floor. Remember that Stephen Miller is the man who flooded the airwaves just days ago with some of the most breathtakingly racist political ads of any election cycle ever. Ads that, by the way, cost Republicans some very important seats. But that reality, that racist dog whistles and culture wars and wild conspiracy confections did not win them elections, that reality has not settled in for the GOP. 
The right wing is not sated, not in remission by a long shot. Stephen Miller is meeting with the man who will presumably be speaker, giving him advice or maybe orders. We have no idea. The Hunter Biden stuff is the focus of two key committees. That is where the GOP is at, which is to say a long way from a normal governing coalition. But the Biden White House is ready for this. At least that is the reporting. CNN reports today that the Biden administration has essentially been conducting mock trials for the past few months in anticipation of an onslaught of oversight. Quote, the preparations are among the earliest and most comprehensive by any administration ahead of a midterm election and highlight how far reaching and aggressive Republican investigations are expected to be. Joining me now is Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor for President Obama and a man who knows well what it is like to be the object of insane Republican investigations. Ben, yes. it's great to see you in person. Good to see you, Alex. Uh, what is it like to know that Republicans have your number and they are going to put the full force of their committees and direct it against you? It's a little dystopian and a little demoralizing, Alex. Um, I I think the thing that, you know, I hearken back to is Benghazi, right? That's the thing that I have tire marks in my back from. Um, And the reality there is what happened when the Republicans, uh, you know, had control of the House is they did seven investigations uh, in 2012, 2013. And you thought when those investigations didn't find anything, oh, the truth and the facts are out. Now we can move on. No. Then they started a select committee, and that continued. And I, frankly, didn't end up appearing in front of one of their Benghazi committees until I think the last year of the Obama administration, four years after the Benghazi attacks. The point being, they never stop. And it doesn't matter what the facts are or what the truth is. They just want to continue the show. The show is the only thing they care about. I mean, it bears mentioning that you had a job, an important job as a national security advisor. As this is all unfolding, right? And you are tasked with dealing with some very high-level negotiations as you're defending your career in Congress. What is that balance like? It's hard. And and one of the biggest challenges for a White House is to limit the amount of bandwidth and stress and fatigue that is put on people who are subjects of oversight. You have to do multiple things at once. You have to figure out how to keep doing your job while taking this seriously. You also have to figure out how to have a message where, yes, you're you're answering questions, you're appearing if you need to before a committee, but you're calling it out. You're describing for people, this is what they are doing. They are trying to distract you from the issues that matter in your life to put on a show for whatever audience they're appealing to, because they don't care about the people who are watching this show. They don't care about the people in the middle who voted against Republicans in a lot of key elections. They care about who's watching Fox News. They care about who's reading Breitbart, who's getting clicks in far-right media. That's their audience. And they're living in a totally alternative universe to the one where you're showing up at the White House every day and doing your job. What is, I mean, what does the White House do? You sort of briefly mentioned some of the things that the White House aimed to do when you were dealing with Benghazi. But like, we had this reporting that the White House, the Biden White House, well ahead of November 8th, was sort of preparing, lining up whatever resources they have. What is that? I mean, do you have a sense of what that might be and what what kind of resources were allocated towards you that could have been increased, not as a criticism, but just as a kind of reality preparation for what's happening come next year? Well, in terms of preparations, you know, what, what are the universe of documents that these people are going to be looking for? How can we anticipate that? Uh, who are they going to call as witnesses and how do we begin to prepare them? How do we begin to prepare for you know requests for everything or subpoenas for everything? Frankly, when I look back on it, the normal push and pull of these oversight things is White Houses are usually reluctant to share information. The problem with that is that drags it out and it's like a drip, drip, drip. 
when I look back on it, it was like, because we didn't do anything wrong, let's just give it all to these people up front and just say, look, here it is. We didn't do anything wrong. Here are the facts. We're trying to govern for the American people. We're trying to move on and do the business of the American people. You guys are the ones who are trying to put on this show and not give them the kind of drama that Washington loves of like, are they going to squeeze this information out of right. these people? Or you, you want to drain the drama out of it because there is no drama. Right. Like, we all know what this is about. I mean, it is complicated for Biden because we're talking about his son here. Right? Well, that's a little different. Yeah, that's a little complicated. But they've been dealing with Hunter Biden issues Forever. from the campaign like this. This has been out in the public domain, certainly in the right wing domain for years now. And they should use that to their advantage. You have to go out and say, you, we all know this. This has all been in the public. We've heard about the laptop. We've seen the pictures. Right. Uh, and they're doing this because they don't have an agenda. They don't have answers to the questions that you care about in your lives. And I think that's the key message you have to keep coming back to. This is a distraction. Describe for people what they're doing and why they're doing it. And they're doing it because they don't have an answer as to how they govern. And I think that that's something worth talking about, right? This isn't just politics as usual. This is, you know, you've written about this in your best-selling books <laughs> about the slide towards autocracy yeah. and fascism and the embrace of anti-democratic yes. principles. And when you look at what the GOP is quite clearly telling the American public it's going to do when they have power in the lower chamber, it's not the job of governing. It's not even the, the sort of normal behaviors of a political party. It's something else yeah. based fundamentally in lies. And I wonder what that tells you about the state of affairs in American politics as it concerns a broader <laughs> slide towards the darkness. I actually think about something that Alexei Navalny told me, right? Russian opposition figure is currently in prison because of his opposition to Putin. He described Putin in a way that actually it does apply to the Republican Party in some ways. He said Putin doesn't have to prove to people that he's not corrupt. Everybody knows he's corrupt. His message is everybody's corrupt. You don't have to you just you don't have to convince people of your virtue. The Republican Party today, it's a it's a strategy of cynicism and voter apathy in a way. Look, everybody's corrupt. You know, Hunter Biden, see, like we may have our problems on the Republican side. Donald Trump and his kids may be totally corrupt and making deals with the Saudis. But look, Hunter Biden's corrupt, too. And look, politics is just so ugly that it demoralizes people. It turns them off. It makes them not want to participate in politics because it looks so ridiculous. You don't want to run for office. You don't want to vote for people running for office. And what you have to combat is that cynicism that, no, this does matter. And what these people are doing has real negative consequences for your lives because it's obstructing government from doing the things that you need them to do to keep you safe, to address inflation, to address all of these issues. Uh, and I think you have to realize it is a strategy of cynicism. Yeah. And you have to somehow combat that strategy of cynicism with incredibly nefarious goals. Yes. Ben Rhodes, former deputy national security advisor to President Obama, man who sat in the hot seat <laughs> for many, many months on end. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thanks, Alex. Still ahead tonight, Senate Democrats will hold on to the majority in Congress. But when it comes to next month's Senate runoff in Georgia, Democrats are not taking chances. And the January 6th committee might be wrapping things up, but just early today, Investigators spoke to someone who may know what was going through Donald Trump's head as his supporters broke into the U.S. Capitol. More on that coming up next. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake up call. 
If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. In just under seven weeks, a new Congress with a slim Republican majority will be sworn in. And between now and then, we are expecting the highly anticipated final report of the January 6th Select Committee. Now, the committee has yet to interview Donald Trump or Mike Pence because the former president blew off a committee subpoena and the former vice president said he won't talk to the committee. But even in its final days, the committee is still getting a chance to interview relevant key witnesses in and around January 6th. One of those people is the lead Secret Service agent for former President Trump, a man named Bobby Engel. That name may ring a bell. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Cassidy Hutchinson, the former White House aide, testified in June that she was told that Trump lunged at the steering wheel when Agent Engel told the president they were not going to the Capitol. Well, CNN was the first to report this, and NBC News has confirmed it. Agent Agent Engel sat for an interview with the January 6th committee today. He had spoken to the committee previously, but that was before Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony. So today is the first time Agent Engel has spoken to the committee since her bombshell testimony. Cassidy Hutchinson testified that former Trump White House official Tony Ornato had told her the story of what happened in that SUV with Engel present and that Engel did not dispute the account at the time. <clears throat> this means that the January 6th panel today presumably got one step closer to nailing down what exactly happened that day. And that matters because it speaks to President Trump's state of mind on January 6th, what his intentions were and what he was doing as the attack was underway. We'll be right back. When Donald Trump announced his 2024 presidential run on Tuesday, it left a lot of people shaking their heads, Democrats and Republicans. Members of Trump's own party expressed concern that the announcement was going to um, complicate things for the final race of the midterm elections, the Senate runoff in Georgia. And it seems they were right. Today, we have confirmation that Trump is not only viewed as a loser in his own party, but he is also turning out to be an albatross around the neck of the Republican nominee, Herschel Walker. This is a new ad from the Warnock campaign. 
We must all work very hard for a gentleman and a great person named Herschel Walker, a fabulous human being who loves our country and will be a great United States Senator. Herschel Walker, get out and vote for Herschel, and he deserves it. He was an incredible athlete. He'll be an even better senator. Get out and vote for Herschel Walker. I'm Raphael Warnock, and I approve this message. That's the ad. It's just a Trump endorsement. That is how bad things have gotten for Trump in the state of Georgia, that the mere suggestion of Trump's touch can turn a candidate into kryptonite. Senate Democrats are looking at this race with big hopes, and they are investing $7 million to beef up the the get-out-the-vote efforts that have already been put in place by nonprofits and PACs and Warnock's campaign itself. Mobilization is crucial here because, for one, turnout has historically been much lower for Democrats in runoff races. And secondly, voters are facing an early voting restriction that happens to be the subject of a new lawsuit from Senator Warnock and the Georgia Democratic Party. Now, that suit asks a judge to reverse the state's law banning Saturday voting after Thanksgiving and a state holiday. In this case, the holiday is a day formally observed as Robert E. Lee's birthday. The lawsuit also argues that the law doesn't apply to runoffs, which have a shorter voting period. Faced with all of this, a lawsuit that might expand voter access, ads weaponizing Trump's endorsement, an influx of millions of dollars benefiting his opponent, with, with all this in front of him, what is Herschel Walker thinking? Well, here he is on the campaign trail yesterday, explaining his candidacy and his reason for running for office. I'm going to tell you something that I found out. A werewolf can kill a vampire. Did you know that? I never knew that, so I didn't want to be a vampire anymore. I wanted to be a werewolf. They walked upstairs in this vampire looking real good in this black suit. Whoa, that sounds like Senator Warnock, doesn't it? He took the cross, he put it on the vampire's forehead, and the vampire didn't even do anything. He said, that don't work, and that's the way it is in our life. It doesn't even work unless you got faith. It is time for us to have faith. We got to have faith in our fellow brother. We got to have faith in this country. We got to have faith in, this, in the elected officials. Joining us now is Kendra Cotton, CEO of the New Georgia Project. Ms. Cotton, thank you for being here. And I saw you smiling, listening to that extraordinary stump speech from Herschel Walker. But let's start with the former president. We are now at the stage of the game where Georgia, formerly a Republican state, someone running in a very close race in that state, the Democrat can literally just run an ad of Trump's endorsement of his opponent, and that's enough to swing voters. Is that how bad it's gotten for Trump in the state of Georgia? Um, Yes, I think it's how bad it's gotten for Trump, but I think it's also a testament to how awful a candidate Herschel Walker actually is. Um, He was repudiated at the ballot box um, in the general. We did not quite get to that 50 plus one threshold, but we fully intend to leave it all on the field um, in advance of December 6th. And yes, I think you accurately described it with Trump being an albatross around his neck. And we're going to continue to remind voters that's who he's aligned with. What of um, the, I mean, the Warnock campaign is a very, I I don't want to say trepidatious, they're a very careful campaign. And it feels like Mm -hmm. they are much more on the offense in these, you know, this final stretch of the campaign that will never end. Um, Do you think that's evidence of confidence? 
Um, I think it's evidence of confidence, but I also think, um, you know, we here we expected this to happen. We expected this to be a tight race. I'm sure the campaign expected that too. Um, but I think they also know that they can't just leave it up to grassroots um, groups like ours um, to to do all of the punching. And so I think what we're going to see now is them trying, you know, like as you already described, be on the offense, not on the defensive um, when dealing with the with the Walker campaign. Um, the grassroots ecosystem here in Georgia is ridiculously robust, and I am so proud to be a part of it. I mean, to talk about the turnout game and what we're going to be doing, I mean, we have plans, New Georgia Project Action Fund, to knock one million doors in just over these 22 days um, before December the 6th. And that is ridiculously a large amount of no a large number because we only knocked 2.1 million doors between the primary and the general all of this year. So we're bullish out here because what we know is that if we can reach these voters, if we can have conversations at the doors, our voters are three times more likely to actually show up and vote. So it is critically important for us to get out. And I think the campaign understands that, too, and energize and motivate these high, what we describe as high opportunity voters. A lot of people call them low propensity voters. But we know that the power that they bring, because this is a game of margins. This is not a persuasion game. People are firmly in their camps. And so what we do at NGPAF and New Georgia Project Action Fund is we try to connect folks to the policies. Yes, it's about Warnock, but we're not here as Democrats. We are nonpartisan. This is about heart issues. This is about what is impacting voters. It's about reproductive justice. It's about, you know, access to affordable health care. It's about judicial appointments. And our voters understand that regardless of who's on the ballot, we are voting for greater progress in this state. It is, it is exhilarating to hear your enthusiasm. People talk a lot about how Democrats behave. I think every, all the conventional wisdom is out the window, and it sounds like the enthusiasm is through the roof. Kendra Cotton, CEO of the New Georgia Project, thank you for the work that you're doing on behalf of democracy. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you very much, Alex. We have one more story to get to tonight. Every vote matters, and in some cases, the difference of just one vote could make all the difference. That story is next. Stay with us. Tonight, Democrats won control of the Pennsylvania State House for the first time in 12 years. Democrats won 102 seats. Republicans won 101 seats. And if you've ever felt like your vote didn't really count in the grand scheme of things, take a look at the two races that decided this thing. In the Bucks County race that won Republicans their 101st seat tonight, the Republican is ahead by a whopping 53-vote lead. In the Montgomery County race that secured Democrats their 102nd seat tonight and with it control of the Pennsylvania State House for the first time in 12 years, that race was won by just 58 votes. But even if that hasn't sold you on the idea that every vote matters, if 50-ish votes is still too big a margin for you, let me direct you toward New Hampshire's State House. Last week, the election results looked like Republicans had taken 203 seats and Democrats had won 197. But 28 of those state house races were close enough that candidates requested recounts. On Monday, the Democrat running to represent Manchester, New Hampshire's Ward 6, she won her recount by one single vote. That brought the partisan split in the state house to 202 Republicans, 198 Democrats. On Tuesday, the Democrat in Coas County, New Hampshire, won his recount by two votes. That brought the partisan split in the state house to 201 Republicans and 199 Democrats. Yesterday, the recount in New Hampshire's 
Rochester Ward 4. That ended in a literal tie, 970 to 970. That means that seat shifts to being undecided. It'll be litigated, ballots will be questions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that brings the partisan split of the New Hampshire State House to 200 Republicans and 199 Democrats. And there are still 11 recounts left to go. Every vote matters. That does it for me and my broken voice box tonight. We will see you again tomorrow. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.